Good morning, Harmony. First thing I want to do this morning is I want to clarify that it wasn't me leading worship uh, today. Uh, that was our Fort Madison worship leader, Jeremiah Landon. Uh, he's just decided to join uh, the small group of the bald and the beautiful. And um, so, you know, it's kind of lonely. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have somebody else uh, joining me there. And it uh, really looks good on you, Jeremiah. So let's keep that look, all right? But let me also say, of course, uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. I know this is a little bit of an unusual Mother's Day but I hope you have a great day nonetheless. I also want to just tell you how thankful that I am, not just for the moms at Harmony, but really for all the women of our church, regardless of how old you may be. The ladies of our church make up such a significant portion of the ministry of our church. They fulfill such a huge, huge role. And so I just wanna tell you this morning, ladies, I am extremely, extremely grateful for your contribution and your partnership in the gospel. I wanna take some time now though uh, to also uh, say a very happy Mother's Day to my own mom. You know, given the the last year that my mom has had, this is kind of a special day for her and uh, for her children. And so let me just say, mom, I love you. So thankful for all that God has done for you and for our family over the last year. And I hope that you have a great day as well. I should probably point out that my mom actually has two sons who are pretty much simultaneously preaching right now. That being said, though, I know for sure that she's actually watching me, given that I'm the oldest and also the favorite. Sorry about this, Jeremy, but that's really just the way it is. I'm sure she'll catch up with your sermon later today, maybe. Now, I want to shift gears and take a moment to give you an update on where we stand in regard to gathering as a church again. As you know, uh, Governor Reynolds has released some of the restrictions on religious gatherings, and this makes us hopeful that we will be able to gather together again sooner rather than later. That said, however, the logistics of doing so, given the size of our congregation and our age demographics, while trying to follow social distancing guidelines makes this quite complicated. And therefore, our elder team has determined that the best course of action right now is to continue to hold services online throughout the month of May with the goal of resuming in-person gatherings sometime in June. I know for some of you that this will be too late and for others of you, this will be too early For some of you then, it might just be about right. But regardless of where you stand on that, we would just ask you for for patience and really for your graciousness as we wrestle with this issue and we try to determine what is the best course of action to both uh, protect our church body as well as our community. So there's lots of things to consider. We've never been in this position before. As I said, it's a very complicated issue. So we would just ask that you would just uh, pray for us during this time and again, show patience and grace as we try to navigate these waters. I will tell you that our staff is currently working really hard on a plan for reopening our campuses, and we hope to be able to share the details of that plan with you in the very near future. In the meantime, though, here's what we do want to encourage you to do. We want to encourage you to consider gathering in small groups. If you do so, please use wisdom and please use caution 
But if you're healthy and comfortable doing so, we encourage you to gather with others, to watch the service, to do a Bible study, to pray, and or simply to fellowship with one another. In conclusion, we're doing everything we can to open up as soon as possible and as soon as prudence and logistics will allow. But in the meantime, one more time, we ask for your patience and prayers as we work toward the day where we can gather together again. Personally, I want to tell you, I I miss all of you, and I am really longing for and and eagerly anticipating the day that we can get back together again. So let's pray that that day will come soon. All right, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me uh, today to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. So far in our sense series, we've seen a lot of firsts in church history. We've seen the first sermon, We've seen the first believers, the first worship service, and the first miracle. And today, we're going to see all, how all of this leads to the first persecution. We're going to see how the forces of darkness began to push back on this fledgling movement. Jesus had warned his disciples in John 15 that they would face opposition. And that's exactly what begins to take place in Acts chapter 4. Less than two months after Jesus ascends back to heaven, his words begin to be fulfilled and they continue to be fulfilled throughout the rest of Acts and even up to our own day. You see, persecution, opposition, and difficulty are simply part and parcel of following Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was martyred by the Nazis, during World War II, wrote from his prison cell, suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. That's a quote from John 15, 20. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. As Christians, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. But here's the silver lining in our suffering. In our suffering, we will often be given the golden opportunity to witness about Jesus. That was certainly the case for the early Christians as we're gonna see repeatedly in the book of Acts. In fact, today in chapter four, we're gonna see one example of how the apostles seize an opportunity to witness about Jesus And in doing so, give us a great model of how we can do the same. Let's take a look at our text now, picking up in verse 1. Luke tells us, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The they here are the apostles Peter and John. You remember from last week, they had just healed a crippled man, and then they'd use that as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And as they're preaching the gospel, the religious leaders catch wind of it, and they they really descend upon them, greatly annoyed or irked, not that they had healed the man, but rather that they were preaching about the resurrection. Remember, these are the same men who had just crucified Jesus, so you can understand, of course, why they are agitated. And in their agitation, verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, 
and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So two things simultaneously happen. One, Peter and John are thrown into prison, and then two, the church grows exponentially. It goes from 3,000 to perhaps 10,000 when you include women and children. The church faces persecution, but at the same time, it experiences tremendous growth. Verse five, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? The word name is the key word on our text today. We're gonna to see it used over and over again. In those days, someone's name didn't simply represent what they were called. It also represented pretty much everything that they were. It embodied everything about them. And so when the religious leaders asked Peter and John, in what name are you doing this? What they're saying is, who gave you the authority or the power or the right to heal this man and to preach what you are preaching? Note how Peter then responds to the leaders. Verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter answers the religious leaders by preaching his third sermon in his many chapters. One of the things that I love about the book of Acts is that we see the followers of Jesus preaching at the drop of a hat. Many times they would even drop the hat themselves. They, they would just take every opportunity to preach about Jesus. And, and you'll note that Peter's sermon here is quite a bit shorter than his first two, but it's just as maybe even more powerful. Peter begins by yet again proclaiming the core tenets of the gospel. He begins by telling the religious leaders that his authority comes from Jesus, the Jesus who is God, the Jesus who they have just crucified, the Jesus whom God has raised from the dead. I just want to take a moment here to point out yet again that these are the very core basic tenets of the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And, and I'm just convinced that if, if we get nothing else during this quarantine time, we're going to get this. We're going to know this by heart. Core tenets of the gospel. Okay, let me just review them with you real quick once again. Jesus is God. Jesus died in our place. Jesus rose again. And if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus, our sins will be forgiven and we will be granted. We will be given the free gift of eternal life. That's where Peter begins, but then he goes on in verse 11 to quote Psalm 118.22 and apply it to Jesus. 
He says that Jesus is the cornerstone that the religious leaders have rejected. Now, a cornerstone in those days was the critical component of a building. Cornerstones were the part of the building that everything else rested upon. A cornerstone determined everything about a building, its size, its shape, and most importantly, its stability. And so what Jesus is telling the religious leaders here is that they have rejected the one upon which life must be built. They've refused the one and the only one who can give a sure foundation, sure stability. He is the only one, the only rock upon which to build your life. And how is that the case? Well, note how Peter ends his sermon in verse 12. It's well worth looking again. Notice what he says. He says that Jesus is the only one to build your life upon because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We're gonna camp out here for a little while because this verse is one of the most important verses in the New Testament. It's also one of the most controversial. So we need to spend some significant time considering it. Let's begin by being clear about what Peter's saying here. He's saying there aren't two ways or 20 ways or 200 ways to be saved. There's one way to be saved and Jesus is it. Let me put it another way. Peter's saying there aren't two ways or 20 ways or 200 ways to be restored to God, to come to God. There's only one way and Jesus is it. Now, let's be honest. This claim isn't very popular today, is it? It wasn't very popular in the first century, and I dare say it's even less popular today. In fact, for many people, this is about the worst thing that you can say or believe. This claim about Jesus is exclusive, and therefore it's incredibly offensive to many. We live in a day of inclusivity. We live in a day where inclusiveness is one of our core values. And it's such a core value, by the way, that even many professing Christians become uncomfortable with statements like Peter makes here. And yet we need to consider several things. Several things I want us to consider this morning. First, to truly believe in Jesus means to believe that he's the only way to salvation. I'll say that again. To truly believe in Jesus means to believe that he's the only way to salvation. In John chapter 14, in verse six, one of Jesus' most famous well-known statements, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't believe in Jesus and not believe that he's the only way to salvation because that's what he explicitly claimed to be. There are many people today who want to believe that Jesus is a way to be saved, but not the only way to be saved. However, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, you don't believe in the real Jesus. 
Now, you might believe in a Jesus, probably a Jesus that you've made up, but you don't believe in the real Jesus because the real Jesus claimed to be the only way. Second, all truth claims are exclusive. All truth claims are exclusive. So yes, it's exclusive to claim there's only one way to salvation, but it's also exclusive to claim that there are many ways to salvation. If you say, there are many paths to God, then you're excluding the belief that there's only one path to God. If you say all religions are equally true, then you're excluding the belief that not all religions are equally true. Quick side note here, all religions can't be equally true because they have beliefs which contradict one another. Christianity and say Buddhism can't be equally true because they have opposing beliefs. The coexist sign that you see on t-shirts and bumper stickers, honestly, it's a nice sentiment, but it's impossible. All the religions of the world can't coexist because to believe in one is to disbelieve the other. They have contradicting, opposing views. Let me give perhaps the best example of how all truth claims are exclusive. What if you believe that all good people go to heaven? This is something that many people believe, and I run into this all the time, particularly at funerals. At funerals, I'll hear lots of people either say in in a eulogy or just as they're really talking about the person who has passed away, they're just having conversation, they will say something in regards to the fact that all good people go to heaven. However, let me ask you this. If you believe that all good people go to heaven, who are you excluding? Think about it. You're excluding all the bad people, right? And do you know who determines who the bad people are? You actually do. You have a line where you believe that there are some people are in because they're good and some people are out because they are bad. Perhaps for you, the good people are Democrats and the bad people are Republicans or vice versa. Or the good people are those who uphold the Second Amendment and the bad people are those who don't. Or the good people are those who recycle and the bad people are those who don't. Right, And you could go on and on here. The good people are those who go to church. The bad people are those who, who don't. We, we all have a line. If we believe that all good people go to heaven, there's a line for us that determines who the good people are and who the bad people aren't, who the bad people are. And really, here, here's how it works. All the good people are the people who uphold the same values that we do, and all the bad people are those who don't. More personally, though, If you believe that all good people go to heaven, do you know who you exclude? You exclude me. You exclude me because I'm not a good person. Now, I know right now you may say, oh, no, 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 you're you're a pastor, so you're a good person. Maybe you're not saying that. But let me just be clear. Apart from Jesus, I am not a good person. I'm not going to make a big confession here, but if you knew what I have done, what I have said, and what I have thought, even just this week, 
you would not consider me to be a good person. You see, apart from Jesus, there's nothing good in me. And so if all good people go to heaven, I'm excluded. Of course, I must point out here that you're also going to be excluded. The same is true for you. The same is true for all of us. Let me just try to prove this for you uh, for, for a minute here, all right? Just imagine that there was a video camera that was trained on you 24-7, followed you around, recorded everything that you thought, or everything that you said, everything that you did, everything that you looked at, and somehow, and, and you'll pick this, some of you will pick this apart, but let, just imagine with me that it actually even could record what you were actually thinking. Everything you say, think, do, it's all recorded, would that not reveal that you don't even measure up to your own moral values? Would that show that not only do you fail to meet God's moral standard, but you also fail to meet your own? Would it not show that you were a moral failure? I think if you were honest, you would say that it would. You see, as Paul reminds us in Romans 3, Apart from Jesus, there is none righteous, no, not one. And friends, as Tim Keller points out, this is what makes the gospel the most inclusive exclusivity there is. The gospel is inclusively exclusive, and it is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Follow me closely here. The gospel says that our salvation isn't based on anything about us. It isn't based on our morality or religious observance or intelligence or ethnicity or hard work or political views. It's a gift that God freely gives to those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. I just want, I want to say that again because I want to make this just absolutely clear today. The gospel is the most inclusive exclusivity there is because it says that, that your salvation is not based on, on anything you, you say or do or where you come from or what, you, what, what your record is, your, your family or anything else. Your salvation is based very simply on what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and freely given to all of those who will turn from their sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the crippled man that Peter and John heal in chapter three is meant to picture all of us. He's meant to illustrate how we all need to be healed or saved by Jesus. In fact, the word that Peter uses for saved in verse 12 is closely related to the word that he uses for healed in verse nine. So what Peter is actually telling us here is he's saying, Jesus healed this crippled man and he will heal you too if you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in him. Crippled people weren't allowed to go into the temple. They weren't allowed to go in to God's presence and worship him. This is meant to picture for us how because of our sin and our brokenness, we can't go into God's presence. We can't have a relationship with him. We can't make it to heaven on our own. But the wonderful truth that we see in our story 
is today is that we can be saved, that we can be healed, we can be made right with God, we can go to heaven, we can have a relationship with him if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus. And that is true for everyone, absolutely everyone. And so, is the gospel exclusive? Yes, but so is every other truth claim. So is every other religion. The difference with the gospel is that it's inclusively exclusive. It's for anyone who realizes they're sick and in need of healing. It's for anyone who will turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. And so if you've never done so, I wanna invite you to do that right now. Right where you're at, right in this moment, I wanna invite you to turn from your sin and turn to faith in Jesus. My friends, it does not matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you have done. All that matters is whether or not you realize you're sick in need of healing. All that matters is whether or not you realize that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. And if you will realize that and turn from your sin and then turn to faith in Jesus, you will receive the gift of salvation today. You will be saved in this very moment. I'm not done with the message yet. We're gonna go on here. But you don't need to wait to the end of the message to be saved. Place your faith in Jesus right now and be saved today. Now, let's continue in the story. Note how the religious leaders respond to Peter's sermon, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We're gonna come back to this verse in a little bit, but I find some humor in this. I, I kind of wonder if later on when Peter and John cut up with Luke after he had written this, they were like, dude, wh why are you doing this like that? I, I mean, wh why are you making us look so bad? The King James Version, I think, calls them ignorant, uses the word ignorant, like why are you calling us ignorant, common, uneducated guys? All right, why are you doing this like that? But anyway, we'll come back to that. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the religious leaders that uh, are speaking here uh, to Peter and John, and they, they really are befuddled. They, they don't know what to do, right? They can't deny what has happened. They're really worried about what the people will, will do, okay, if they continue to persecute Peter and John, but they're concerned about this spreading through the people. And so they, they just warn them, hey, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And note how Peter and John respond. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they have further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 
So this is another fantastic story, one in which the apostles provide what I would say is the perfect example of how to be a witness for Jesus. And since we've already looked at the content of their witness, I now want to point out the characteristics of their witness. There are four of them. The first is submission. Submission. In verse 8, Luke says that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, to be filled means to be controlled. Peter's able to powerfully witness about Jesus because he's yielding himself to the Spirit. He's fully submitting to the Spirit's leading in his life. And get this. If you're a believer, you have the same spirit that Peter did. What's more, you have the same amount of the spirit that Peter did. Peter didn't have any more of the Holy Spirit than you do if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so the real question isn't how much of the spirit do you have? The real question is, how much of you does the Spirit have? Because if the Spirit has you, like he had Peter, then you will be able to witness just like Peter did. The second characteristic that enables the apostles to witness like this is humility. You'll note that when they're asked how they were able to heal the crippled man, they don't take credit for it. Instead, they give all the credit to Jesus. If we were to go back to chapter 3 and verse 12, we would see that they say to the crowd, why are you looking at us? Why are you in awe and wonder and thinking that we had anything to do with this? This wasn't us, it was Jesus. Disciples don't make a big deal about themselves. They only make a big deal about him. This, by the way, is what separates the apostles from the many so-called healers today. Now, I'm not saying that the gift of healing is no longer in existence, but what I am saying is that many, if not most, modern-day healers make sure that they get at least some of, if not all, the credit for their purported healings. Not so with the apostles. They're not worried about making a name for themselves. They just want to make a name for Jesus. And if we're truly going to witness for Jesus, we must do the same. Our attitude must be the attitude of John the Baptist when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. The third characteristic that enables the apostles to witness is courage. Peter and John show incredible courage in this story. A fact that in verse 13, Luke says the religious leaders recognize. He says that when they see the apostles' boldness, they recognize that Peter and John had been with Jesus. He says they are, they are completely astonished that these guys are, are able to witness like this. These guys are able to speak like this. These guys are they're able to be so bold and courageous. Remember, this is the same group that had condemned Jesus. And so Peter and John could have expected nothing less for themselves. Right? As Peter and John are in trial, they could have expected nothing less than to be handed over to the Romans to be crucified themselves. It only happened like two months before. And yet instead of being paralyzed, they refused to be concerned about self-preservation and instead courageously give themselves to gospel proclamation. 
brothers and sisters, in the Holy Spirit's power, we must do the same. We must courageously witness about Jesus. We must put aside our concern for ourselves and boldly proclaim the truth about him. We must have the same focus that the Apostle Paul did when he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The fourth characteristic is tenacity. In verses 19 and 20, Luke says that after the religious leaders threaten Peter and John and command them to stop preaching about Jesus, Peter and John respond with, we're sorry, not sorry, because we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. They're like, we can't shut up about him. This is another thing that I so appreciate about Jesus' followers in the book of Acts. They have been so transformed by what they have seen and heard. They've been so transformed by what they have seen Jesus do for them. They've been so transformed by by who they have come to realize that he is that they can't stop speaking about him. They can't stop witnessing about him. You know, many of us today don't speak about Jesus hardly at all. And yet what we see in the book of Acts is the first Christians couldn't be shut up. They could not shut up about Jesus. They were absolutely tenacious in witnessing about him. The first Christians were like Peter Cartwright, a great Methodist preacher in Illinois during the early 19th century. Cartwright was known as a very um, uncompromising man. And in fact, he had moved uh, from Tennessee to Illinois because of his opposition to slavery. This was about three decades, by the way, before the Civil War. So it took a lot of um, boldness and uh, being uncompromising uh, to, to do something like that in those days. And it's said that one Sunday, President Andrew Jackson uh, visited his church. But before the service, um, Cartwright's deacons got nervous because Cartwright was known for speaking whatever was on his mind, whatever he believed the, the Lord would have him to say. And so they pulled him aside and they encouraged him not to say anything that might offend the president. So when Cartwright got up to preach, he said, I hear that President Andrew Jackson is here today. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. Now, I wish that I could be in person with you right now today to see the look on your faces, to hear the oohs and the ahs, maybe an amen or two. Maybe it will be the uncomfortableness that will come with a statement like that. But you know what? The problem today isn't that we're too tenacious in declaring the truth. It's that we're not tenacious enough. Were it that we were all as tenacious in declaring the truth as Peter Cartwright and the apostles were before him. By the way, after the service, President Jackson came up to Cartwright and said to him, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. You see, while we're often worried about how people are going to respond to the truth, 
it's often exactly what they want to hear. And more importantly, it's always what they need to hear. Friends, our world needs to hear the truth. They desperately need to hear the truth about Jesus. And I just have to wonder what God would do if we as a church tenaciously proclaim it as Cartwright and the apostles did. In closing, I want to talk about what enables the apostles to witness as they do. What's the secret to their submission, humility, courage, and tenacity? Well, the answer is found in verse 13. Once again, Luke says that when the religious leaders see the boldness of Peter and John, they recognize that they have been with Jesus. The religious leaders have this, may we say, aha moment. It's a moment where kind of the, the, a light bulb goes off and they, they recognize that Peter and John are acting just like Jesus had acted in their interactions with him. They recognize that, that just like Jesus was spirit-filled and humble and courageous and bold, so now too are the disciples. You see, Peter and John are spirit-filled, humble, courageous, and bold because that's what Jesus was like, and he has now rubbed off on them. Spending time with Jesus has made the disciples like Jesus. So here's what we need to get from this. We need to recognize that being with Jesus is what transforms us into people who are like Jesus. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to spend time with Jesus. Do you want to be spirit-filled? Do you want to be humble? Do you want to have boldness and tenacity in witnessing about Jesus? Do you want to be like Peter and John in our story today? I don't know about you, but when, when I read this story, I come away saying, I want to be like these guys. I want these things to be true in my life. And if that is true for you as well, then what I'm telling you today is you have to spend time with Jesus. Two weeks ago, I challenged you not to waste your pandemic. And I'm gonna give you the same challenge today. Our time in quarantine looks like it's coming to an end. And I, for one, am, am thankful for that. But I just want to challenge you that as it does, I want to challenge you to, to yet again, to commit to voting more time to be with Jesus, to devote yourself to spending more time in worship, in Bible study, in prayer, and in engaging in these things with other Believe it. I'm dead serious about this, Harmony. Let's not waste this time, this opportunity that God has sovereignly brought to us to look at our lives, to see that there are things that need to change and to commit and to make those changes. And let me just tell you, let me just tell you, if you will do this, if you will begin to spend more time with Jesus, amazing things will begin to happen you will begin to see more fruit of the Spirit in your life, more things like love and joy 
and peace and patience. Anybody want those kind of things? You'll see that you become more humble. And just remember, James tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You'll see that you become more bold and tenacious and witnessing about Jesus. You'll begin to talk about Jesus more and more. And as you begin to talk about Jesus more and more, people will begin to respond. And let me tell you, there's nothing more exciting, nothing more wonderful than to see people begin to come through Jesus through your witness. Do you know what the most effective way to witness about Jesus is? It's not simply speaking about him. Oh yes, that's absolutely essential. But the best way to witness about Jesus is to be like Jesus. And the way that we become like Jesus is by spending time with Jesus. So Harmony, let's spend time with Jesus. And then as we become like Jesus, let's go out and show and tell the world about Jesus and watch him grow his church as we do so. Let's pray.